This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. When it's time for a new credit card, the best ones do way more than just buy stuff. And that's why U.S. Bank offers credit cards that make every day more rewarding. Earn cash back. Score points when you shop, dine out, travel, or binge watch. Or get a low intro APR. U.S. Bank credit cards were designed to fit your lifestyle. So make every day more rewarding. And check out usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Hi there, hockey fans, and welcome back to PuckCast with Statsman and AJ Rotowire's Hockey Podcast Show. Friends, I'm Paul Bruno, and you can follow me at Statsman22. My co-host, as always, is AJ Scholes, and you can follow him at AJ Scholes24. That's A-J-S-C-H-O-L-Z-2-4. We're getting warmed up with a series of off-season reports in anticipation of the 2018-19 season, beginning with today's episode. But we also have to tie a bow on the most recent postseason. And uh, so on today's episode, we've got an interesting menu of topics here. We're going to start it off with that Stanley, Stanley Cup final review, the NHL awards review, a summary of the NHL all-star teams, the NHL draft review, and then a look at some of the off-season trades and key signings that we've seen to date. And if there's a little bit of time, we got to look at the John Tavares free agency situation. Let's bring in my co-host. How's everything with you, AJ? Doing well, Paul. Glad to be uh, you know, back on the air with you here and uh, getting ready uh, for the upcoming season. Like you said, got to tie off a few things lingering from last year, but I'm happy to put that one behind me. And then we can focus on both our clubs, uh, you know, doing uh, doing a little bit better in 2018-19 so uh, we'll round it out and then turn to the next uh, but before we kick off the rest of the show just remind our listeners uh, at any point over the summer I know we're not doing consistent shows here but if you have questions uh, about keepers uh, you know draft analysis how a move is gonna uh, trade or something like that is gonna impact uh, your favorite team or even your fantasy team feel free to tweet at us as Paul mentioned you can follow me at ajshills24 and you can follow Paul the statsman at statsman22 all right so right off the top we got to take a look back at the Stanley Cup final, AJ, pitting two teams that have never won before. In fact, the worst expansion franchise against the best one. And uh, <laughs> lo and behold, the Washington Capitals got their first Stanley Cup. But boy, the Vegas Golden Knights have no apologies to make on a fabulous first season that fell just a little bit short of the ultimate prize. What were your impressions of that five game set? Yeah, I was a little surprised it wasn't uh, it wasn't a closer uh, or a longer series, really. Uh, you know, I I thought, uh, you know, Vegas with the extra time off uh, that they had, you know, they had some very short series uh, in the earlier rounds. So I thought they'd be able to hang with them a little bit longer. It looked like that was going to be the case when they came out uh, with that big six four victory. Um, but their offense kind of dried up a little bit. Uh, flurry didn't look, uh, as great as he has in the past. Uh, and really Washington just looked like it was, you know, their year, Alex Ovechkin, uh, you know, was on a roll and, and on a mission in this one, you know, and it's hard to, it's hard to beat a club when you have a guy like Devante Smith Pelly, who I don't know if he had seven goals in the regular season, um, but he did in the playoffs here. And so, you know, when you get that kind of help, uh, you know, it's just hard to beat a team really, you know, uh, all through the playoffs i was thinking there's some big teams that they're facing and the physicality is going to get to them right right from the beginning when they face los angeles i'm talking about vegas and they overcame all that stuff so really you looked 
the final thinking, okay, this is just going to be another repeat possibly, but boy, you touched on it. Uh, Alex Ovechkin played like a runaway locomotive, and he had a lot of uh, his cohorts that uh, came right in line with him, and they made a very rough ride, and they caught the Vegas Golden Knights with their physicality and slowed them down, I think. And you also mentioned that uh, Marc-Andre Fleury, who after three rounds was certainly the lead dog in terms of the Conn Smythe Trophy race, uh, he kind of uh, took a step backwards and the goals against reflected it uh, It was almost twice as high as what it was in the first three rounds I think maybe the pace uh, of these playoffs just got to uh, the roster of the Vegas Golden Knights you know got to remember that it was dotted with a lot of guys who haven't played lead roles and hadn't played in the intensity uh, first round after round and and it's quite a quite a long journey to get through the playoff uh, uh, steeplechase, if you will, and uh, the Caps seem to be better built for it. One through four, their their lines just ground uh, the Knights to a pulp by the end of the fifth game, you could say, and uh, top to bottom, skill players and third, fourth liners, they all played the same way, so it was a relentless attack, and uh, Braden Holtby elevated his game and actually outdueled flurry which is not a shock because they're both excellent goalies so uh, it, they effectively negated the vegas golden knights biggest advantage in the nets so at the end of the day the caps win their first stanley cup and uh, uh, the knights magical season drew to a close but it was really funny to watch ovechkin and, cl- and the club celebrate this was a one of the wilder <laughs> wilder stanley cup celebrations that was chronicled we saw them swing swimming in uh pools of water and statues and stuff like that and uh really i was i was expecting that we would see a a search for ovechkin after a couple of days like as he disappeared (laughs) but uh, he he kept it together even slept with a cup i thought is he going to use up all of the the caps nights with the cup all by himself because (laughs) he just every everywhere you looked he was with it all the time and uh but uh, good on him. Uh, certainly cements his legacy as a first uh, ballot Hall of Famer. There's no question about that. The greatest scorer of our time in the modern game. And uh, now he has the Stanley Cup on his resume along with uh, 14 or so other trophy wins. So uh, a well-decorated career for him and a uh, fantastic victory for the city of Washington. AJ, let's uh, move on now with a look at the NHL awards. They, were ta- they took place in Las Vegas. And, uh, you know, when they first started this thing in, in Vegas, I thought, oh, a cheesy thing. Why are they doing it in Vegas? But now, with the success of the team, it's, it seems to all of a sudden be a nicer fit, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, uh, as you've mentioned in the past, we do uh, an annual rotowire trip out there uh, just for, you know, some some hanging out, some uh, camaraderie time. Uh, and it, it is, it's a great place. It's a great city to host any sort of event. Um, and so it really, it, I think it really fits. Um, I'm sure a lot of the players uh, don't mind going to Vegas for, for a couple nights too. So uh, yeah, just a, a great city to host a, a great event like that. And uh, with the awards show, this was the first year, AJ, that I can remember seeing the actual voting for some of these trophies. So I want to go through some of those with you. And the one of the most intriguing ones was the Hart Trophy. And really, this is the first year where there was a real emphasis on the value of the player to his team. And so while it may shock some of our listeners to note that Connor McDavid, who arguably is the best talent in the league, the best player, was fifth in the voting here. So didn't even make the top three. But now we see just where he ranked. He had six first place votes. A total of 270 points in the voting, but fell way short of the top three guys. And I want to focus on the top three guys and get your slant on them, AJ. So I know you're looking at the same information as I am. The top three guys to recap were Taylor Hall, Nathan McKinnon, and Anze Kopitar. Yeah, for me, I was, uh, you know personally I, I thought it for sure was going to be Taylor Hall um, and it obviously was but when you look at the breakdown of the voting it, it's actually a, a little bit closer than I thought it would be about 70 points um, you know they did a, an allocation system um, and so it really kind of was closer between Hall and McKinnon than I really thought it was. Um, I think the right player won. Uh, McKinnon, certainly uh, the key piece to his team. And I, and I think the reason you're seeing McDavid further down on this list is that despite how good he was, his team was still terrible. Um, so <laughs> he, he does add a lot of value. He is the best player on that team, arguably the best player in the league. Um, but if your team's not very good, you know, I, you're, 
you're not doing enough or, you know, I, it's hard to say Connor McDavid's not doing enough, but I do think, uh, it's reflective of, of team success there. And, and the devils, uh, had, had a solid year, kind of a bit of a bounce back year for them. And, and Taylor Hall led the way for them. So I think the right person won, but I was a little surprised to see uh, how closely, uh, contested it was by, uh, Nathan McKinnon there. Yeah. It just seems funny to look down the list and see Sidney Crosby with one, one point in the voting for a fifth place vote vote but it just shows you how deep the the pool was in terms of real good options i know brad marchand was even 11th this is a guy who was second in the league in points per game but he only played 60 games uh, in in good health so uh, if he plays the whole season maybe he moves up that list considerably and boston uh, finishes a little bit higher in the standings actually so uh, you can certainly make a case for each of the top three guys though anze kopitar leading an older roster there into a third place finish kind of was the outsider of the top two guys but i uh, for me it was a coin flip between hall and mckinnon mckinnon was a runaway train most of the season and really elevated a team that missed the playoffs the year before into a playoff position last year and you made the point that uh, playoff qualification has to factor in here and that also has to be the primary explanation for why Connor mcdavid falls to fifth in the voting despite the fact his team uh, missed the playoffs he still was up there in the top five which is a credit to him and uh, also a nod to claude Giroux, who gets my vote for comeback player of the year aj finishing around 100 points for the season right where we're used to seeing him year in year out for a number of years before he uh, faltered a little bit but a nice comeback season for him so some really neat stories here in the in the voting and uh, no fewer than 20 different players received votes to tell you how broad the field really was we go to the defense uh, situation for the next uh, trophy the norris trophy uh, victory went to Victor Hedman. Uh, pretty narrow one over Drew Doughty and P.K. Subban rounded up the top three. Uh, I wonder what your comments are about those three guys and if any of the na- other names on this list uh, caught your eye and maybe you should have got more votes. Yeah, I, th- I think the biggest one that kind of caught my eye was was John Carlson being all the way down in fifth. Um, he had a great year statistically, uh, really did help drive that team in a lot of ways. So so I would have thought he'd be a little bit higher on that list. Um, I, I don't think he should have won the Norris Trophy. I, I do think the right player won here again in Victor Hedman. Um, I, I, the other surprising thing for me was the gap between, you know, Hedman came in at 1385 in, in the point system, Drew Doughty, 1164 and then it really drops off to pk suban at, at 565 and i would have thought he'd be a little bit higher a little bit closer um in contention for that and and really that came down to first place votes uh all the way across here headman got 94 dowdy got 52 and pk suban got 11 so yeah the, that was kind of the only real uh you know eye popper to me was was kind of that big gap and then i do think carlson probably should have gotten a few more Uh, votes and and maybe crept up a little bit yeah i i don't have a quarrel with the winning uh, tally of victor hedman drew doughty is a guy who's been in the mix for years suban i think is hurt by the fact that nashville has three guys that you could put on this list in fact one of them was seventh overall in the voting and that's roman yossi so really a depth on on the nashville defense and the quality there explained why they finished as the president's trophy winners uh, in the league but uh, no slouches in any of the top three. Seth Jones had a real breakout year for Columbus and, and finished fourth, adding a little bit of an offensive part to his, his game, which was predicated mostly on the defensive side of the puck. You mentioned Carlson had a great year offensively. Interesting to note there that his plus-minus was flat on the year, AJ, despite having over 60 points scored and playing on a potent team. The, the defensive side of the puck kind of failed him and kind of hurt his chances, I think, in the voting here. Uh, although you did mention he had a great playoff. The, the playoff season doesn't really factor into the voting. This is done by the end of the regular season season so if it had gone the the end of the playoffs certainly he would have been a little bit higher in the race Klingberg was the guy he had a great first half AJ was head and shoulders above the league in terms of scoring from the blue line but really faltered in the second half and that explains why his total flagged to a sixth place finish I mentioned Yossi and Brent Burns was behind him in eighth place uh discovered his offensive game a little bit later in the season uh, last year after a soft first half so maybe that hurt his cause too but again you look at this list and you think Eric Carlson in 12th spot Dougie Hamilton in 14th Zdeno Chara 15 
Giordano 16. That 16, 18 players get votes in this thing. A couple of the guys at the tail end, a little bit suspect, maybe some homer calls there, <laughs> Josh Manson and Jacob Slavin, but uh, certainly the other guys that all received votes were worthy of getting some consideration, so I was glad to see that. In the Nets, uh, going along with this 5-3-1 point allocation for first, second, and third place votes, it was kind of a bit of a runaway in the net mining as Pekka Rinning outdistanced Connor Hellebuck and Andre Vasilevsky, but both, all three of those guys were instrumental in the outstanding seasons that their teams did have. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think, again, I, I, I hate to keep saying this, but I do think the right person won on this one. Uh, Peke Rene, I think, was just uh, head and shoulders above uh, the rest of the league for, for the regular season. Um, Hallie Buck, I think, is a great, great spot at number two. What I think is a little interesting is Vasilevsky didn't get any uh, first place votes. I would have expected him to maybe get one. Uh, your, your guy, Freddie Anderson, got one. Marc-Andre Fleury got one. Uh, and I think Fleury's higher on this list if he plays the whole season um, and has the same, you know, number, same numbers he did during the regular season. If he carried that out into a full, uh, you know, year, uh, you'd see him a lot higher on this list. But Pickett Rene, uh, one handily, as you said, and, and I think that's the right call. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Connor Hellebuck certainly emerged uh, right from the beginning of the season where it was a bit of a coin flip in the nets between him and Steve Mason. He won that job after opening night when the Leafs shelled Mason, and he never got, got the net back because Hellebuck got in there and just played his heart out all season long. Vasilevsky was awesome in the first half. Another case of a guy faltering a little bit in the second half. You can sort of say the same thing about Freddie Anderson, who was Don Cherry's pick as goalie of the year, incidentally, AJ, I can tell you that. But uh, Freddie and uh, Andre Vasilevsky, they both, both faltered statistically in the second half of the season. Interesting to note that in, this, in that division, the best goalie in the second half was Tuka Rask, and yet he only managed to fit, finish seventh overall in the voting here. Sergei Bobrovsky, who's won this thing a couple of times, didn't get a first-place vote, had a good season, only uh, finishing eighth in the, in the rankings. So a total of 10 goalies get votes here, and they're all first-string go- goalies with a, a big star by their name as guys that can play 60-plus games. So you've got to look for that if you're projecting next year to say who are the guys that are contenders here they got to show that their workmanlike uh, ability can get them into that many games and uh, be that much of a factor for their team so that's why this is a bit of a shorter list than some of the other positions uh, that were voted on the rookie of the year voting was uh, another one that i found kind of interesting there were two guys that distanced themselves from the field and one guy who had a great first half and faltered a little bit those account for the top three names in barzell besser and keller but there were a number of other rookies that had good first seasons aj yeah, I, I think Kyle Connor, uh, who came in fourth here, uh, is one player who had a phenomenal year. Uh, defensively, you know, you look at most of this list, it's it's offensive guys, but uh, Will Butch- Butcher, uh, Mikhail Sergeyev uh, both show up on this list and, and well-deserved uh, to at least have, have their names under consideration. Ba- uh, Barzal uh, easily, I think, had the best year of, of any of these guys, um, and so uh, a well-deserved victory for him. Uh, uh, Charlie McAvoy, another defender on this list, uh, I looked, overlooked him. Uh, maybe it's cause he's from, he's on Boston. I just, you know, kind of ignored him there, but, uh, no, so a, a great bunch of guys here on this list. I think everybody here was deserving. Uh, even Jake DeBrusque who got just a, a one fifth place vote, uh, to get on this list. I, I think he was deserving of that as well. Um, and so, yeah, great, great selection of guys. And, and if you're in a, a, a keeper league, these are all guys that you definitely want to consider hanging on, uh, for next year, even if you're in kind of like a hybrid where you only get to keep a certain number, um, you definitely want to take a look at these guys and, and consider holding on to them. Yeah, interesting note that the top draft pick last year, Nico Heischer, finished seventh. And you might look at that and say, oh, that's a disappointing year for him. But he was outstanding for the Devils, too. And people kind of forget that uh, he was the first overall pick when you look at some of the other guys that beat him out on this list, including, of course, Barzal, Besser, and Keller. But Kyle Connor fell into a great situation playing a top six role in Winnipeg. Charlie McAvoy got to play with Zdeno Chara. Yanni Gord was well insulated in that top six in Tampa. So there were a number of guys that had 
had better situations than Heischer. And so the seventh-place finish shouldn't look, be looked upon as a disappointment. Right behind him, Pierre-Luc Dubois, who was the third player picked behind Patrick Liney and one Austin Matthews, actually made his NHL debut last year in terms of a full season, and he had a great year too. So some high draft picks uh, that may be viewed on the surface as a bit of a disappointment when you think about the other players who performed uh, shouldn't be thought of that in that regard, and everybody on this list, really a great talent, and uh, they're primed for excellent careers, all, all 12 players here that got the vote. Up next, we go to the defensive, defensive forward, uh, top defensive forward, and certainly the perennial names here uh, ranked in the top five. You got Kopitar, Couturier, Bergeron, Barkov, and Koivu. It's been a mix of the, most of those guys for the last several years. I also note that Sidney Crosby finished in the top ten in terms of defensive forwards here, AJ. That's uh, something that I didn't expect to see, but uh, kudos to him. Uh, really, uh, obviously still one of the best two-way players in the history of the game, and uh, still a signature player in the NHL there I said it for you <laughs> well good I, I don't have to rehash it um, you know you look back uh, on this award uh, over the last uh, eight years only two players have won it not named Patrice Bergeron and Anze Kopitar uh, and that's uh, you know Ryan Keller uh, in 2010-11 and then uh, Jonathan Taves won it in in 12-13 but otherwise it's it's Ben Bergeron and Kopitar uh, pretty much annually uh, and I think you'll consistently con- you know continue to see them on the top of this list and kind of trading it back and forth for a while um, you know I, I think there's some other great uh, great players out there that can work their way into being you know on on top of this w- list uh, William Carlson uh, Braden Point I think could uh, contend for this down the road at some point um, but as long as Bergeron and Kopitar are still in the league uh, they're probably going to be uh, the top two guys fighting over this reward yeah the guy that made the biggest breakthrough here is Sean Couturier for me but he was well insulated in a top line for Philadelphia that really drove the engine there and he picked up 37 first place votes to finish second in the voting here just edging out Patrice Bergeron Alex Barkov you know I, you got to watch this guy closely just to see what kind of a dominant player he is at both ends of the rink and a big body player very tough to play against I've had the chance to see him uh, play a lot of games in in the division with the Leafs and boy he's a physical uh, presence and a specimen that bears bears watching a hard guy to corral and certainly when he leans on you you're not going far so uh, his size and strength obviously instrumental to, to his uh, abilities at both ends of the ice and they're reflected in the point totals here Miko Koivu probably the sleeper of all of the top five uh, kind of uh, reflects the image of his team a team that uh, you kind of take for granted but boy when you face them you're re- reminded of just the talent that's there in a 200-foot game in Koivu. So the top five guys really caught my eye there. Willie Carlson gets the nod for Vegas in sixth place, but I found that one a bit of a surprise, uh, AJ, because he was more noted in my mind for the scoring exploits that he uh, exploded with this season. Nonetheless, he got sixth place, first place votes, so this was kind of the most hotly contested position in terms of the number of different guys getting first place votes there, and uh, all valid options here, and certainly uh, out distancing some of the guys that uh, have been in this mix before, like Jonathan Taves is a name, uh, Logan Couture, Brad Marchand got some kind of consideration here too. But uh, the young, the uh, the guys at the top of this list, all there on merit, playing that game that all coaches drool over, and that's that 200 foot game. The Lady Bing Award for the most gentlemanly player. It's a 10-7-5-3-1 point allocation. First to five place. Place, first to fifth place votes count here. Willie Carlson gets the nod. Brian O'Reilly was second for Buffalo. Alex Barkoff third. And other names followed. AJ, what do you think about the voting here? Yeah, the only thing that that I would say here is, is I think uh, Ryan O'Reilly uh, could have a, a a, a gripe here although if you're the most gentlemanly player you probably don't um, <laughs> but you look he played 81 games and had two penalty minutes yeah. two in 81 games uh now that's not to say carlson was out there hacking away he only had 12 uh on the year so um certainly a deserving player but this is the first one where really i was a little surprised uh at at the outcome i, I think ryan o'reilly uh was probably the the better option here uh, and I, and I think he is having, you know, uh, a rough year maybe with Buffalo is, is part of, 
maybe what factored into that. Obviously, the Golden Knights were, were top of mind uh, with their success on the on the regular season. But uh, yeah, I think I think Ryan O'Reilly will certainly be in contention for this down the road, uh, and we'll probably get it at some point. Uh, actually, I think he did once back in 2013-14 uh, when he was with Colorado. Well, and AJ, to your point, I look at the names on this list, and some, they're some of the biggest stars in the sport. Uh, down, we already talked about Anze Kopitar, uh, Austin Matthews, Claude Giroux, Connor McDavid, Logan Couture. They are all guys that finished in the top ten or twelve in the voting here. John Tavares is on this list a little bit lower. So uh, some of the cream of the crop of the NHL, which just tells you that this game game can be played almost exclusively with skill and without being offside in terms of the rules here. And a wide range of people got votes. No, uh, no fewer than fifty uh, different players got consideration here. So it kind of gives you a bit of a sense for where the game is going. It's going away from the rough and tumble aspect and more focused on skill and skill only i'll say but uh, we already talked about the stanley cup final where it was a bit more physical and none of those guys in the final who were prominent in that regard are on this list so that's that's still a telling thing for me um vegas was at the top of the coach of the year uh, rankings they did come off with some postseason awards no fewer than four i think in total for vegas on on awards night and Gerard Gallant maybe the biggest and easiest slam dunk when you look at the coaching situation he, he knows he distanced the field uh, edging uh, Bruce Hassidy and Jared Bednar in Colorado quite handily here yeah I mean this one was was a shoe in with with uh, you know how their season started with that that tragedy there kind of bringing uh, a team of, as they like to call themselves, misfits uh, together into a cohesive unit. Uh, You know, 102 uh, first place votes uh, for Gallant here. Uh, Cassidy and Bednar combined for the other six. Uh, So I I, I think uh, rightfully so, a shoe-in victory for Gerard Gallant. Yeah, and it's funny to note that of the 108 votes, Gallant was not on only one, was absent only on one list here. I don't know how he whoever that reporter was but i i think he has some answering <laughs> to do there but uh no fewer than let's see 13 17 different coaches got votes here i'm thinking there was some homer stuff going on as well but uh i i don't think there's any question that gallant was the runaway winner here so we don't need to spend a lot of time dissecting this one same thing goes for the gm uh, award. I think McPhee won this thing before the season even started, in my opinion. But I want to talk about a little bit about uh, Kevin Sheveldayoff in Winnipeg. He's built himself a great team here, size and speed combined. And Steve Eiserman, I've been touting this guy for a couple of years for the masterful job he guide he did guiding Tampa through some tough salary cap issues for about a year and a half here. So that's your top three, and uh, no surprise that they're all there. Yeah, absolutely not. I think the biggest question uh, for for Winnipeg looking forward is is how they keep these guys, how they manage all the cap. Uh, and I, th- I think he'll definitely be in contention to win this uh, down the road. But yeah, to your point, uh, McPhee and everything that they built uh, for this team, you know, with their success, it, it, it was a, a lock there. And uh, that brings us to the all-star teams that were voted on for the end of the season aj this is interesting because Connor mcdavid is properly recognized as the top center in hockey and arguably the top player as well he won the, the award also that bl- the players vote on in terms of the best player in the league so he gets the nod as the first line center taylor hall and nikita kucherov on his wings victor hedman and drew doughty on defense and pekka rinning in goal there's a second team there there's a, a all rookie team with made up of barzal besser clayton keller mcavoy and butcher you mentioned uc saros was the voted on as the top goalie of the year any surprises on this list for you the voting is contained uh underneath the list of the trophy winners so we uh, the award winners in terms of first second place and rookie so we can dissect that if you want but uh, i don't think there were any surprises here no not really the only thing i i probably would have made a case uh to flip uh instead of besser kyle connor but it, it's really 
you know, one in the same for the most part. I, I don't think they made uh, any bad choices here. I think the right guys all made this list uh, in, in various ways. And a, a shout out to UC Saros had a great season in relief. Uh, there weren't a lot of rookie goalies to really compete for this uh, right. for this title, but he definitely stepped up uh, when called upon, did a great job keeping uh, Peckett Rene much uh, fresher for, for a lot of the season. Uh, and so yeah, a, a great job by him. And now uh, we want to talk a little bit about the draft, AJ. There was no surprise in terms of the top two picks, but after that, it got a little bit interesting for me. But uh, we can go through some of the names here. No surprise at number one and number two, though. Why don't you take us through the first two names and uh, talk a little bit about those guys? Yeah, I mean, Rasmus Dahlin, uh, you know, this was considered uh, the draft lottery was the Dahlin lottery. Uh, he was going to go number one regardless of, you know, team need or, or who took him. He's just heads and tails above everybody else. And I think uh, Buffalo's GM said it best. Uh, he would have improved the blue line for all 31 teams, yeah. uh, regardless of who had won the draft lottery. So uh, a clear cut number one. And then Shefnikov uh, as the number two, I think this was uh, pretty much a lock as well. Uh, there was some question between him and Philip Zadena, who uh, you know dropped all the way uh, to sixth. Uh, a little surprising there for me, um, but Carolina gets a great pick here. Uh, and really has made uh, some significant improvements both with this pick. Uh, I expect to see him playing for them this season uh, pretty pretty frequently. I, I doubt he'll even touch the minors at any point unless he hits some sort of uh, strange slump. But uh, yeah, the top two pretty much just shoo-ins. Uh, and then, yeah, to your point, it, it got a little bit interesting. Like I said, uh, Zidana dropped all the, all the way down. Uh, and was made available for uh, for Detroit, who gets a steal in that one, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I, you know, I think uh, the other player that was a real good pick here. I think if Zidana goes at, at the regular time, I think Quentin Hughes would not have made it past Detroit. Um, uh, but Vancouver picks him up at seventh. I could have seen him going a little bit higher uh, here. But, uh, you know, that that's he's if it weren't for Dolan, I think Hughes would have been the runaway uh, defensive prospect heading into this draft. So a couple interesting uh, slides there. Uh, that's kind of what I saw right off the top here. For me, yeah, Dallin was a, a no-brainer, a, a franchise-type defenseman. There's only about 10 or 12 of these guys in the league, and so to get it, have a chance to get a guy like that, you can't pass it up. He's got the size, he's got the speed, and really a lot of leadership qualities already at a very tender age. Andrei Svechnikov, you mentioned uh, his name at the number two spot, a game-breaker that played in Barry, just north of where I live, and I've heard a lot of people say they've gone to see this guy and really a dynamic force offensively that will bring some color to the Carolina lineup that's been missing, and he'll be thrust immediately into a top-six role. But after that pick, uh, you know, I'm not saying this to slag on Montreal, but I didn't like the pick of Jesperi Kotkanemi, Kotkanemi for, for that franchise. Certainly he has some size, but in terms of being a... Uh, quality finished product uh, he's nowhere near that uh, me that maybe the best center in the draft uh, as he projects down the road but if you're looking at the players as they are right now there are guys that are ahead of him in terms of the the development curve and and it's a bit of a reach for me to have seen them pick uh, him at number three the guy that i really liked was brady tachuk this guy is a meaner version of uh, matthew tachuk <laughs> and almost more reflective of his father, Keith, who was one of the most terrorizing power forwards in his time. Brady Tuchuk just likes, looks like his dear old dad, playing out of Boston University, has already got the size in place at 6'3 and 192 solid pounds. And Tuchuk, he plays with a very big heart and, and uh, really wears it on his sleeve. And I have all day for a player like that. He's going to be an impact guy in Ottawa very, very soon. And maybe a guy that they build, rebuild their club around uh, you mentioned number five Barrett Hayden another head scratcher coming out of Arizona I really am starting to wonder about the management team down there AJ this was a second mistake in the top five and it led to Philip Zadina dropping into the laps of the Detroit Red Wings when we get Jimmy DeVolano on in a couple of weeks I'm certain that we're going to ask him about Zadina and the good fortune that he feels for having him fall into their laps in the sixth spot and also we can talk about the second pick they made in the in the first round why don't we do that now when we look at at uh, 
Joseph Valeno, this guy was a top 12 ranked player. He fell all the way to 30th. So that was another one that Detroit fans should be really feeling good about and uh, a pick that came their way because of a previous deal with Vegas, allowing them that second pick in the first round. Toronto fans will want to hear a bit about Rasmus Sandin. It certainly makes you think of Matt Sandin when you hear that name roll off the tongue, <laughs> AJ. But this is a defenseman, a smallish defenseman, maybe in the Morgan Riley mold. And if he turns out to be half the player that Morgan Riley is, uh, I'll be thrilled. But he played out of Sault Ste. Marie. So this is an interesting thing only because in addition to the talents this guy possesses, the, the G, Leafs' new GM, Kyle Dubas, knows a thing or two about that whole organization. So he knows all about Sandin's character and uh, the makeup of this kid, and that's so important when you're making first-round picks. You can't afford to miss, and I don't think the Leafs did here, and it's having that insider knowledge, that intelligence on a guy who uh, the GM is very familiar with. But if we go back into that first round, there's a couple of other picks that were a little bit of a head-scratching variety. Ryan Merkley was picked by San Jose. This is a team that has been lauded uh, lately for the way they've they continued to be contenders here, but I think this might be a bit of a reach. They took a skilled defender, but he has some off-ice issues, and uh, that's why a lot of teams shied away from him, but uh, he fell all the way to 21st here, AJ. Uh, so that's one that, that I watch with some interest. Uh, another fellow who goes to the Rangers, Keandre Miller, a big strapping defenseman, kind of looks like a Seth Jones type in terms of his makeup, goes to the Rangers at 22nd. This is a team that's rebuilding here as well. So a couple of interesting picks later in the first round. And uh, interesting trade also with the Leafs and St. Louis. I wonder why most more teams don't do this, AJ. When the Leafs pick came around, they thought there's three or four guys that they could pick. And if there was another team that wanted a guy right in that 25th slot where the Leafs were originally picking, they could flip that guy, and, and they did, and they picked up an extra choice. So it's a, something that's worked well in, in the NFL draft for a couple of teams in the past, and more teams now are starting to take a look at it in the NHL draft, so I just thought it would be worth mentioning here. Are there any other names that you want to talk about in this first round? It's interesting. Also, I'll make a note that no fewer than 14 legacies were drafted in this NHL draft. We'll talk about them in a minute, but if you have any more thoughts on the first round, now's the time. Yeah, I, I actually was going to highlight Keandre Miller as well. Um, and to your point, that was uh, uh, the other example we had of this. The Rangers traded up uh, to make sure to get him. Uh, he, you know, uh, has a, a real strong upside now uh, for Rangers fans. You're not going to see him immediately. He's uh, committed to the University of Wisconsin. Quick shout out to, to my uh, my uh, local uh, collegiate team here. But uh, yeah, he's six foot three, 200 pounds. Uh, can skate really well. Um, and, and I think it's going to be interesting to see, uh, you know, how he develops. Now he has, uh, switched to defense somewhat recently. So still acclimating to the position and that's why they'll let him play for a while, uh, at Wisconsin, you know, he's going to get great coaching, uh, there, uh, you know, um, names eluding me right now, but the U S national coach, uh, this past Olympics is the head coach here at Wisconsin. And so, uh, former NHL coach as well, eventually the name's going to come, but, uh, yeah, so he's going to get great coaching at Wisconsin. That'll really help with his development. Uh, and I think it's, it's an interesting move by them to go up and get him. I, I one that I think is really good, uh, for them and, and highlights, uh, what you were talking about with, you know, seeing more and more in that in in the nhl and i think it was good uh for them to move up and uh, i mentioned the 14 legacy tony granado that's very it. good <laughs> I, I, was I, gonna, I was just gonna <laughs> feed it to you there but uh, I mentioned the 14 legacies. We see that in the Toronto Blue Jays system that the, the Jays went after a number of players that, whose fathers made hay in, in, in uh, major leagues. But there's no fewer than 14 guys, including the son of Wendell Clark. This one makes me feel old because I was at the 85 draft when Wendell was picked. But Cody Clark was the top uh, pick in terms of legacies, going number 47 to the defending Stanley Cup champions. He had 39 points last year in 56 games for Ottawa in the OA. NHL. And right behind him, Riley Sutter, son of the former NHL center Ron Sutter and part of that fabulous hockey clan. The machine just keeps out churning <laughs> NHL players. He had 96 points in 166 games during three seasons with Everett in the Western Hockey League. But other prominent names there include Mat Matthias Samuelson, Jack Drury, 
Tyler Madden, those last names will be familiar to any hockey fans of the last 20 years in the NHL. Any other names? I think what's... Well, I was just going to add, I think what's kind of interesting and why that happens is, you know, there's a transition from uh, wherever you're playing, whether it's overseas, uh, juniors, uh, you know, if you're going to go play collegiately, there's a transition for that to the NHL. And I think having, uh, you know, all these players clearly have somebody that they can contact and, and talk through some of this and the team doesn't really have to worry about that a lot of these guys have probably been uh around uh nhl locker rooms as kids you know with with their dads as well and so i i think you get uh some i feel like there's less off-ice concerns uh less uh problems with transitions when you take these guys because they have kind of those uh guys in their corner that can help them through a lot of this stuff and so i think there's it's almost like a security blanket right for these nhl teams if the talent level is there between two guys that are roughly the same but one of them has you know this this uh extra little edge i think you're going to take the guy whose dad played the game yeah i think that becomes a key point just because it's become so, it's it is a lottery when you're talking about the draft and who to pick and where to pick them and why to pick them uh, their fathers uh, have been through the, the rigors here and they know exactly what goes on so it's just one more checkbox that's filled in when you're trying to decide between player a and player b and uh, uh, it's something you can really hang your hat on. And, and when it comes to the quality of some of the players who are the fathers in this regard, it really makes you take a second look here for sure. And in terms of uh, taking a second look, there were some trades that went down, AJ, in the last few weeks. We want to go through them. I'm going to kind of go through them. Uh, in uh, Let's take them one at a time and, and really dissect these deals and see what we each think about them. First one that I want to bring to mind is the Calgary Flames trading Dougie Hamilton Dougie Hamilton and Michael Furland to Carolina Hurricanes for Noah Hannafin, Elias Lindholm, and Adam Fox. Two good defensemen here changing uh, sweaters and uh, some interesting pieces besides that. I I tend to look at this this deal and say Hannafin is a guy who was the third pick in his uh, draft. Uh, Dougie Hamilton was just as high in his draft, but Hannafin has not really realized the upside that we've seen out of Hamilton so far. Elias Lindholm kind of better than Michael Furland in in terms of head-to-head talent. I think he fits in as a top six player here easily uh, when he uh, goes into his new club in in Calgary. And Adam Fox, a top prospect too into the mix. So I like this deal for for the Hannafin Lindholm Fox side here. Yeah, I mean, I think it works out well for both. I mean, uh, the the obvious question, you know, is uh, trying to re-sign uh, Hannafin and and figure out what that looks like um, for them. So I I do think there's there's some questions. Obviously, Dougie Hamilton's locked in for you know three more seasons at a relatively decent price of you know five point seven million. So uh, I think overall it's a win for both sides. Uh, the flames, you know, will get, uh, you know, Hannafin will kind of get a chance to, you know, maybe jumpstart things, uh, you know, with the new team. I really look for him to kind of learn, um, from some of these guys on, on, you know, uh, some more veteran guys that wasn't really an option for him, uh, in Carolina, but with Calgary, you know, he's got obviously Mark Giordano there, but even Travis Hamannick, Michael Stone, these are guys that can kind of guide him and it, maybe it'll help him a little bit, uh, kind of jumpstart it. So I think it's a good move by both uh, clubs you know Carolina gets a more uh, established defender in, in Dougie Hamilton they had to give up uh, you know a little bit more uh, in order to bring him in but overall a good trade on both sides yeah the only addendum that I'll make there is Dougie Hamilton's been traded twice now AJ and start, so you start to look at that and you think think are there some issues with him and uh, reading between the lines I have to conclude there might be and so that makes me even feel stronger about the fact that uh, I think uh, Calgary did well here in terms of getting the quality that they did in this in this particular haul. Uh, the Washington Capitals were com- kind of compelled to make a trade here that uh, leaves them a little bit bare when you look at the goaltending situation. You'll have to p- probably find a backup goalie, maybe promoting from the, within the system here as they have a top prospect in the system. But they acquired a second-round pick in the 2018 draft from Colorado in exchange for Philip Grubauer and Brooks Orpik. This was a move that they calculated would give them enough cap space to sign John Carlson. They did lock him up with an eight-year 
$34 million contract. So the math did work out at the end of the day, but it was definitely a calculated move. And uh, Colorado gets another top young goalie into the mix here, and you wonder what that means for Semyon Varlamov and Jonathan Bernier in the goaltending mix in Colorado. I'm sure at least one of them is now expendable. And where does Grubauer fit in the pecking order there? That remains to be seen. Or picked probably is a guy that... Uh, will be re-signed by the Cavs because I don't think Colorado's retained his services and uh, maybe just a piece that uh, they initially were able to jettison to make that move and get him back cheaper. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see Colorado make the decision to buy out Orpic's contract. Uh, they've got plenty of cap space, so it, it, it won't hurt them too bad. It's only one year of a buyout on that. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised to see them make that move. Uh, you mentioned the, the Simeon Varlamov situation. You know, he's been so banged up there um, that I, I just think it's a little bit of insurance uh, with Grubauer. I hedge to think that this will be closer to an even split between the two guys but a lot of this will be decided in training camp uh, i'm i've never been a fan of splitting net miners so uh, i think they should just go with one guy and maybe they do give varlamov one more year to kind of show he can stay healthy that he can play uh, and let grubauer sit behind him for a year they got grubauer locked in for another three at a relatively okay price of $3.3 million a year. Uh, that's decently okay for a backup, maybe a little high. Uh, Jonathan Bernier is going to be gone. They won't re-sign him, so I think that clears things out a little bit uh, there. For the Capitals, uh, I don't think they need to do anything. Uh, they've got Phoenix Copley, uh, who they brought in last year. He's a, a solid uh, AHL netminder. I think he'll fit in perfect uh, behind Brayden Holpe for this year. And then let's not forget, they did also sign Ilya Samsonov, yeah. uh, kind of the young prospect there. Uh, so they've got him in the system as well. So I, I think both sides are, are going to be fine on this one. And I do think you make a good point. If Colorado buys out that Orpic contract, he could find his way back to Washington. Then uh, we talk about a saga that has unfolded in Ottawa that really just adds to a list of the misery in the, in the Canadian nation's capital. Mike Hoffman, uh, at the center of that storm, his girlfriend and uh, Eric Carlson's wife were at odds in a bit of a Twitter war that blew up that dressing room during the course of the year. Of course, the tragedy that befell the the Carlson family and the loss of their child also factoring into the mix here. But Hoffman was dealt twice in the same day. Ottawa first moving him, trying to get him out of the division. They sent him along to San Jose along with Cody Donahue, a prospect, and a fifth-round pick in the 2020 draft. And in exchange, they got Michael Bodker, a kind of a top six forward there. Julius Bergman, a recent draft prospect, and a sixth pick in the 2020 draft. This was Ottawa just getting rid of a problem in the dressing room and getting back a top six guy probably about as, as good as they could in a player of Michael Bodker's quality here. But uh, before the dust settled on that deal, uh, San Jose turned around and flipped Hoffman in a seventh-round pick in this this year's draft to Florida in exchange for fourth and fifth round picks in this year's draft and a second rounder in 2019. So the efforts, despite Ottawa's efforts to trade him out of the division, there he is. They'll be facing him four times next year. Well, look, Ottawa got fleeced on this one, to be yeah. to be perfectly honest. And, uh, you know, that's it's part of what they had to do. If they have any hope of keeping Eric Carlson and getting him to resign with them, uh, Hoffman had to go. You know, it, there's a lot going on with this story. Um, and I really don't want to comment, you know, the Hoffman and his girlfriend have denied it entirely. Um, so without really commenting, the fact of the matter is there's, there's no way you could keep him on the team. Even, even if, uh, they're proven right and that they had nothing to do with this. Um, you still you just can't keep him on the team if you want to keep Eric Carlson. Um, and so he had to go and San Jose knew that. And so they took uh, Ottawa to the cleaners and then uh, turned Hoffman around and, and got some decent uh, pick help for that. San Jose is a clear winner in this one. Now, Florida will certainly appreciate, uh, you know, having a 20-goal a, a scorer like Hoffman on the, on the team. It'll, it should help them. I would guess he's going to be a top-line guy right off the bat for them, uh, maybe second line with how they want to stagger everything. But San Jose was a clear winner in this one. They fleece Ottawa. They deal a little bit of <clears throat> cap space which is going to help them 
maybe corral John Tavares. Uh, we'll see. Uh, and then they stockpile some picks. And then really the first trade in the offseason of any note was uh, a trade of two teams getting rid of problems. Uh, Arizona sending Max Domi to Montreal in exchange for Alex Galchenyuk. I cannot anticipate seeing Ty Domi wearing a Montreal sweater in the stands here. <laughs> I, I just can't wrap my head around that one. But uh, essentially what this is, is Max Domi trying to revive his career. I had heard little whispers in the summer that he wasn't happy in Arizona. That's no surprise. Alex Yelchenyuk, the Canadians just couldn't get the maximum output out of this guy, it seemed, no matter where they tried him. So they got frustrated with him, too. So teams getting rid of their problems. Which one of these players makes out like a bandit next year, or are they both going to continue to struggle in a new environs, AJ? I am at a loss here. Montreal doesn't have a center for Domi to play with. He needs that quality pivot to get the best out of him. That's what we've seen in the past. And Galchenyuk, somebody's got to decide whether this guy plays the winger at center. Yeah, I, I think the number one thing here um, for Rick Tockett in, in, with Galchenyuk is just to pick a spot. It, I don't think it really matters, but make him a center, make him a wing, and then leave him there for the whole season. Don't change it up on him because that's not helping him. Uh, it's not you know improving his, what he can do overall. Um, but I think Galchenyuk's been somewhat uh, you know maligned in uh, unfairly maligned in uh, Montreal. There, I mean, this guy had 51 points last season. It's no slouch. Now he was a ridiculous minus 31. Uh, and so there are obviously some two way concerns there, but it ha- uh, just about half his points, 24 came on the power play. Uh, I think Arizona wins on this one. I think if they can pick a spot, get him there and let him play, uh, they just upgraded significantly. I mean, you look at Domi, uh, not a bad season, 45 points, but just nine goals. Uh, wasn't able to to get that tenth one to to get double digits there. Lots of assists, and you're right, he's not going to have anybody to really play with. Uh, so that's probably going to hurt his assist numbers a little bit. And if he can't find the back of the net, I see uh, Domi potentially facing a, a drop off here. While Galchenyuk, if put in the right position uh, by the coaching staff, could have another big year. Yeah, to underscore Domi's struggles, even at least two and probably more of his nine goals were empty netters. AJ, so that. Makes makes the numbers even more staggering in that regard. Uh, these guys should both be scoring a little bit more than they have been. Galchenyuk a little bit closer to where he ultimately resi- should reside in the 25 to 30 goal range, but uh, Domi well off that. In terms of signings, I also already mentioned the John Carlson signing uh, for eight years, an annual cap hit of $8 million uh, for the Caps defense. They locked him up because they realized just how, how few of these top caliber defensemen there are in the league, and in order to sustain their position at the top of those, the standing, and as defending Stanley Cup champs, this is a guy they needed to get back in the fold, and so they did that. And uh, another one that kind of makes sense when you look into it a little bit more, Ilya Kovalchuk was wine and dined by about a half dozen teams as he decides to return to the NHL. He signed with the LA Kings for three years at an annual cap hit of $6.25 million. This is a pretty interesting and a good fit because the top part of the uh, Kings talent pool is guys that are in the 30 plus range so Kovalchuk fits the win now mentality I just wonder how many miles he has left in the tank at 35 years of age the schedule is a little bit lighter in in the KHL so that was probably more to his liking and he scored like crazy over there uh, because the quality just isn't there I wonder what the Kings are going to get here for their six and a quarter million dollars yeah I I think the price tag if you wanted to bring him in, you were going to have to pay that much because there were so many teams, you know, trying to get him in. Um, it's a little high for me, uh, but we'll see if he can be, you know, his uh, his last kind of half season in the NHL with the Devils. He had 31 points in 37 games. If he can push for right around that point per game pace, then 6.25 million might turn out to be kind of a steal uh, on Carlson. Uh, the price doesn't get me. It's it's the term on this one. Eight years is a long time for a 28-year-old. You're looking at him being 36, 35, 36 in the last couple of years of the contract. Um, but again, this is a situation where if you don't give him the term, maybe somebody else signs him. So I think you were stuck uh, with that either way. But I think towards the tail end of this deal, they might not love it so much. 
for you know a 33, 34 uh, year old John Carlson at eight million a year might be a little steep uh, once they get to that point. You know what uh, we talk about these signings, but uh, in terms of the upcoming free agency, we're also going to have a separate show, AJ, later this week on Thursday. I think we're planning on taking a look at that situation. A number of players who were restricted free agents have already been uh, dispatched by their clubs, and they've been told we're not going to resign you, so they add to the names in the pool. We're going to be touching on some of those names in our show on Thursday, but i got to end this show. you got to talk me in off the ledge here on this one because John <laughs> Tavares is all over the news with the fact that he and his camp are entertaining no fewer than six teams. The first ones they met with were the Maple Leafs yesterday, and uh, the, the free agents can talk freely with potential suitors this week in advance of the July 1st and the opening of the free agent frenzy. The biggest fish, of course, John Tavares, with the sweepstakes likely holding up other news as no fewer than five other teams are making their best pitches before free agency begins on the first. So, of course, the new uh, New York Islanders GM, Lou Lamorello, has been talking to Tavares' camp since before he was even officially announced as a new front office guru. I have a bit of a problem with that. And there's a strong belief that the Islanders will retain the captain, but I'm not so sure because, as I understand it, the Islanders' best offer is eight years and $88 million. This is a team that's still got some issues in terms of the defense and in net. And Tavares, if you wants to win i don't think it's going to happen with with the current makeup of the islanders despite the fact they have uh the the one of the top young players in hockey behind him in, in matthew barzal the leafs rumored pitch uh, included the uh, notion that they're going to give him the captaincy and uh, he can get a max deal on a one-year contract aj that would pay him upwards of 15 million dollars this season with a promise of a seven or eight year deal that they can renegotiate in 2019 once he joins the leafs when the calendar turns in january they can offer them him that eight additional years and he can get about a hundred hundred million dollars out of the leafs if he goes that route it's a very interesting case because the new g new york islanders GM can paint a nice picture but this team has the big holes like I said and issues with their arena up in the air so that gives me hope that Toronto is a viable option but there are teams like the Sharks, the Bruins Lightning and possibly another dark horse or two believed to be Nashville and Vegas who both have cap space and uh, good quality teams to to try and woo the uh, Islanders superstar Here's the problem I have with the, the, the Leafs kind of fitting them in is you know Yes, uh, they have the cap space right now, but they got to pay Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner in a year. Um, he obviously won't get as much, but Kasperi Kapanen is another player that's going to need a deal in a year. Willie Carlson. Uh, Willie, Nylander. Willie Nylander, yeah. Yeah, he needs one right away here. Um, And even you look at, you know, some of their older guys, but our leaders on this team, Tyler Bozak, Leo Komarov, if they want to bring either of those guys back. Uh, JVR is another player who, you know, could potentially uh, get some money here around the corner. So I I just struggle to find where they're going to fit it all in. um, Heading into the future, And, and I just think it would be a little tight um, for them. Uh, and I think it flies in the face of everything they've tried to do recently and the success they've had by building uh, through the draft with their younger guys. Now, they brought in Patrick Marlowe, who I think has been a great addition to the team. Uh, they've got him for two more years so he can provide that veteran leadership until you know some of these younger guys are fully ready to take over. Um, and I have to question what Austin Matthews' opinion would be about not getting the captaincy now i have no idea if he wants it or not um but he should be kind of he is the face of the franchise you would imagine at some point they'll give him the captaincy here so to bring in Tavares to with the promise of taking that uh you know might not sit well with their young star here so I, I actually don't like the fit. Now, it's hard to say a team wouldn't benefit from having John Tavares on there. Um, but obviously, uh, there's other considerations here and other cap situations in the future. And I, and I just don't see it really working out in, in Toronto here. Okay. If not Toronto, then which team makes the most sense to you? I'm going to put you on the spot here. Uh, certainly, <laughs> certainly, the fact that he's always been with the Islanders stands them in good stead. Uh, the familiarity that he has with the franchise and the fact that Lamorello's let him in on every step of the, the plans that have unfolded this summer in uh, on the island and probably going forward you can bet that 
uh, Ma Tavares is probably going to be treated like a part of the management team, it seems, going forward while their plans continue to unfold. But the notion of Nashville, Vegas, and San Jose, those are the top three teams outside of the Leafs situation that I see here. And uh, you can make a certainly a strong case for all of them. I think the best one lies in San Jose, personally, because he can play in relative anonymity out there, gets to play with a mature team that's been a Stanley Cup contender for years. So uh, the Leafs are kind of in win-now mode. San Jose is there. The Bruins are always there. The Lightning, I don't know how they're going to fit this guy in, in terms of the mix there. The one outlier that doesn't make a lot of sense to me is the Dallas Stars. But I wonder how you read the whole situation. Yeah, pretty much uh, uh, about how you described it. I, I think uh, the you know I'm not going to second guess Steve Eisenman. <laughs> He's found ways to make it work, um, but it does seem like uh, I'm not. I agree. I'm not totally sure how he fits in there. Um, I think the Sharks make the most sense. They've got uh, talent on the back end. They've got solid net mining. They've got front end talent in the space to fit them in here. And so I, I do think uh, San Jose is probably the best fit here. Um, otherwise, you know, I, I, I think, uh, you know, I, you mentioned Nashville and, and maybe there's a way they can do, you know, do some, some clearing out here. Uh, you know, they brought in tourists. Has that really worked out? I'm not so sure. Uh, Nick Benino didn't exactly pan out, which is why they traded for tourists in the first place. Um, so, I, it's definitely going to be a contender, which is why I, I kind of agree. I don't really see Dallas being an option. Um, there's just some missing pieces with that team. Uh, they just always seem to not quite put it all together. Um, and, you know, Boston has been thrown out there as well. Uh, I don't know. I, I just don't see it there either. You know, they've got a ton of guys already in town and they're trying to get younger uh, and not that Tavares is old by any means, but it, it again, it doesn't really fit with them trying to get a little bit younger uh, away from having to rely so much on Marshawn and Bergeron. So uh, we'll see how it all shakes out. But if I had to pick, uh, I think San Jose is, is probably the, the leader on this one. And so that was a bit of a tease for our next episode on Thursday. To all our listeners, we invite you to come back and check things out uh, that's going to wrap it up this week uh, aj as the first of our off-season episodes is now in the books we still want to remind our listeners to send their comments or questions on twitter to follow me paul bruno at statsman 22 you can follow aj at aj shoals 24 we hope you enjoyed this show and circle back on thursday this week when we take a deeper look at the pending free agent pool in anticipation of the upcoming player movement should be a spectacular time once july 1st rolls around partner as always we invite you to listen to get in on our tips and stay ahead of the competition in your fantasy hockey offseason planning. So long, everybody. 